We're, uh, the theme for the summer is going to be the messiness of the kingdom. Now, most of the time in our upbringing when we teach about the kingdom, we're looking forward to something that is not messy, right? And so that's how we typically think about it, and that's how we typically communicate it. But you know what? There's a present aspect of the kingdom that is actually very messy, and the parables talk about that. So I've been wrestling with the parables for a little while. We just finished at our church, by the way. We looked at the minor prophets. And uh, one of the things we looked at is when you put all the minor prophets together in a panorama, if you will, you see God's uh, grace, you see his presence, you see his patience, you see his love. I mean, the first, the first prophet didn't come for 150 years after Solomon died when the kingdom split in the Civil War. So uh, the kingdoms, uh, the minor prophets covered 300 years, and that's uh, how patient God is. He's never in a hurry. He just isn't. Uh, and he loves to give people lots of grace and patience and space to figure out what they believe. Then when they believe, when they come to the conclusion they don't agree with him, all right, he moves on. And so we're going to take a look now. We're moving into the New Testament. We finished last week with Malachi. That was the last minor prophet chronologically, and then got quiet. God got quiet. Quiet doesn't say a word. It's interesting, there's a lot of literature written during that intertestamental period between the two testaments. Yep, we know. People up there going, can't hear, can't hear. We're aware. They're working on it. See, that's what you get for sitting way up there. You can't hear. See, the godly come down here. I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> So uh, Malachi is the last prophet chronologically, and then God got quiet. And he stepped back and said, let me see if you learned your lesson. Okay, that's my interpretation. Let me see if you learned your lesson. And um, it was 400 and something years before Jesus came. So Jesus came and immediately started talking in parables about the kingdom. He started giving insight into this very mysterious kingdom they started saying right away, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. And uh, they're thinking that God's going to come, the king's going to come back, restore the kingdom like he did under David, and we're going to have this really powerful kingdom. He's going to break the Roman rule, all of that. And what a surprise. That's not actually what happened. So that raises the question, why did Jesus actually come to the earth? Why? I mean, it's easy to say, well, I came to die on the cross. Okay, we all know that. But it's far bigger than that. You see, the gospel is so much bigger. Second Timothy, Paul says, David, Jesus is a descendant of David. That is the gospel that I preach. Do you ever hear that in the gospel? Why is that in there? Because what's going on is a world history. It's a world story, a world narrative that goes on for a long time of God redeeming people and it demonstrates his patience we saw that throughout all the minor prophets they cover 300 years so jesus comes and does not live up to the expectations of the jewish people he simply didn't he started uh talking to people that the rabbis wouldn't have talked to he started touching people that were unclean and healing them he began teaching messages that the world wasn't used to hearing the Beatitudes, they're an inversion of the world's values, okay? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, 
all of that sort of stuff. All the values that were considered the bottom of the social structure, uh, that's what he highlighted. And they weren't expecting that. No one was. Um, so why did he come? Did he come to bring down an empire? That's what happened. One of the questions I've raised in our church, how did 12 people bring the Roman Empire to its knees? How did that happen? If you were to come and say, all right, we're going to come and we're going to take, take down the Roman Empire, where would you start? You'd probably start with the emperor and the senate. That's not where Jesus started. He started with the poor, the marginalized, the widows, the orphans, the sick, those that were, had physical ailments. That's where he started. And then over the course of uh, over 400 years, the bottom fell out and the Roman Empire collapsed. It just collapsed. And we began to learn something through that story. And then when he began to communicate the secrets of the kingdom, the mysteries of the kingdom, if you will, he often did it in parables. And he did it on purpose because you really got to pay attention to these parables to to make sense of it. And we began to learn through this long story and in Jesus' teachings, we began to learn that we really have two kingdoms at work at the same time. We have the natural world. That's the world we live in. It's a, it's a broken world. It's a fallen world. I know I don't have to tell you that. Just read social media or mainstream media, and you'll figure that out. We have that world, but then we have this spiritual world over here in which we are called on to live our lives. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom we belong to. And it's very difficult to navigate between the two worlds. It really is. The principles, all the principles of the New Testament are designed to get us over into this world, the spiritual world over here. He doesn't have to tell us how to sin. I mean, any of you that have kids know that that's natural. <laughs> you know, especially when they become teenagers. Just kidding for you teenagers out there. From day one, they know how to sin, don't they? It doesn't take them long to figure out how to say no. And so to move us from this to this is uh, a process of stepping into a spiritual kingdom. So when I look at the Old Testament, here's what I think of it as. It's kind of like a children's picture book where God paints uh, the world the way he intended it to be. Some of you know we went through Leviticus two years ago. And uh, that's where you can touch the walls of the temple. It's where you can hear the animals, uh, you know, making their sounds as they're going to the sacrifice. That's where you can smell once they sacrifice them. If you've never been around a, a sacrificial temple, like a Hindu temple or something like that, yeah, it doesn't smell very nice at all. They could see it. They could hear it. They could smell it. And then that becomes like a children's picture book that God uses in the New Testament to begin to describe this spiritual kingdom that we can't see. I mean, it's a really interesting challenge. How does he, how does he ex expect us to live in a world that is beyond our five senses and our three dimensions, but that's exactly what he's asking us to do, is to live in the spiritual world and to make sense of it. So he says things like, we together, our bodies are spiritual temples, but we together are a spiritual temple. What does that even mean? We don't have temples. 
Most of us not in our world in the United States don't. So we go back into the Old Testament and we look at the Jewish temple, the functions of the temple, and we can bring those forward. For example, this is where in the Jewish temple in the ancient world, this is where they had all the festivals three times a year, seven festivals they celebrated three times a year. Everybody had to gather, all right, and sing. Uh, the rabbis tell us that they would sing sometimes eight hour, uh, all 24 hours a day for eight days, the t- festival of uh, tabernacles, for example. That's where the nation got together. So when the world looks at us over here in this, the church, because we're the spiritual temple, do they see us dancing and singing? What do they see? If you follow the news at all, they see a lot of pastors that are acting very badly. That's what they see. All right? And I've had to change some of my message in my uh, conversations with people over the years because the stereotypes about the church in America are so powerful and they're so strong and they're so true. It's time to be honest. And say the stereotypes that are painted about the church, they're right. So I've said to several people, can we just set aside the stereotypes for a few moments? Not because they're wrong, but because they shouldn't be wrong. And then let's have a conversation about authenticity out of this book right here. Let's talk about what should be like. I get it. I know that there's good churches and good Christians all over the place. But man, the churches that are... And making it challenging. and They're very big and very powerful churches. And I hear about it. I'd spend 20 hours a week talking to people. And the stereotypes, they're very real. They're very powerful. And it's okay to say they are largely accurate. But they shouldn't be. And we have a lot of work to do in this country to move us in a different direction regarding fruit of the spirit, kingdom values. So we're asked to live in this spiritual world um, and make sense of it and to love people in the spiritual world. I love Jesus as, uh, in John 13. He washes their feet. And then he says, a new commandment I give to you. You don't quite understand what I'm doing right now, but you will understand. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Nothing new about that. That's right out of Leviticus. So what's new? That you love one another Here it is, as I have loved you. Okay, so picture this. They're at the Last Supper, and he's sitting there reclining, talking to them. He knows he's about to be betrayed and and, uh, executed. He knows that. Love them as I have loved you. Hey, Matthew, so uh, what was going on in your life when I met you? Oh, Oh, sorry, Lord. I was a tax collector extorting money from everybody. And Jesus said, right, and I came after you and loved you, didn't I? Hey, Nathaniel, what was going on in your life when I came after you? Oh, sorry, Lord. I didn't mean to diss Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Apparently so. Yeah, he's trashing the the Messiah. All right? And it'd be fun to go down with every one of the disciples and figure out what their life was like. And Jesus went after them. They did not choose him. He chose them. So when he says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another, that's not new. What's new is is what he adds to it, as I have loved you. And you know what that tells us? We go after our enemies. But you know what it tells us? Every one of you is an enemy to everyone here. I guarantee you, I start talking about politics, and i got to find out who's in which camp. It's a no-brainer, right? 
What do we like to say? We should talk about anything except religion and politics. Those are the things we should be talking about. And we're immediately going to find out where, where the world labels us, aren't we? And yet, what did Paul say? The famous verse, which we've quoted many times, if anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. Well, the verse before that is the one I love. Based on the work of Christ, we no longer evaluate people according to the world's standards because the world is over here in a natural world and everybody's labeled. You're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're progressive, you're conservative, you're, you, gotta, you fill in the blank. But over here, there are no labels. There's no scarlet letters. It's real simple. If anyone is in Christ, you belong to the new creation. And Jesus is introducing this into a world that can't make sense of it. They don't understand it. It's hard to, if you want to have coffee, we could talk about it. It's hard to uh, overstate how countercultural the teachings of the New Testament were in the era in which they were written. You can't overstate it. So it's in these parables that he begins to surface this spiritual kingdom that lives in a natural world. Uh, One day, one day we're going to see the final physical part of it, but we're not there yet. So what that means is right now it's really messy. There's no other way to describe it. Every one of you that have marriages out there, you know what I'm talking about. There may be one perfect marriage out there. I'm not sure who it is. But the rest of you, you feel the tension, the, the rise and fall of, of what happens in your marriage and your relationship with your friends. And, you know, one of the things that Nancy and I have talked about as we age, my friends from decades ago, one by one, they're, they're falling away. They walk away from the Lord. They get divorced. They, and that group is getting smaller and smaller. I don't have the time left in life to recapture that type of friendship. 50 years. I don't. And it's messy. And the parables show us that it's messy. And so that's why I think people didn't like to hear it. Not only was it challenging, but it was just complex and messy and very mysterious. So when we look through these parables, we're going to look at one today. It's a real short one. Uh, Steve, thank you for reading that. The parable of the mustard seed combined with the parable of um, the yeast. I had to ask Nancy for a cooking lesson to understand the, the yeast side of it. And so she was explaining it to me. And so these parables, they're giving us a glimpse over here in the spiritual world where the kingdom exists, not in the natural world where we have to live. And every one of you has to of the spiritual world within the context of a spiritual kingdom. Because the message was really clear, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Exodus 19, what does he say at the beginning before, just after they come out of Egypt? He says, if you obey me, I'll make you a kingdom, a kingdom of priests. What does 1 Peter 2 say? We are a kingdom of priests. What does Revelation 1 and many other places in Revelation say? God has raised up a kingdom of priests. And so the covenant that God made with them at the Exodus is the same covenant we live under today. What makes it new? The Holy Spirit. But the covenant is the same. That's why Exodus 19 and 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, Peter quotes Exodus 19. We are to be a kingdom of priests, a royal, a holy nation. 
We are to be the agents that, if you will, that God will bring, take out into the world to love this world, to love our enemies, to show them the reality of this kingdom, which they cannot see. You know how they see it? By experiencing you. That's how. That's how. So several times this year, I've asked my church, you know, do you, do you really believe that God wants to see you? When I look out here and when I see my people, here's what I see. I see people that work in the public school system, public health department, work in retail outlets, that work in the building construction community. They're all over the place. God has got Christians everywhere in Summit County. Does he really want to use us to change this county? For you, those of you that are visitors, do you feel that? He really wants to use you to see this kingdom grow. So the, he says a parable, it's like a mustard seed. That's a very, very tiny seed. And it grows into this incredible bush where the birds can sit in the branches. By the way, I love out here in the summertime. I don't know if you can hear, but every Sunday, every Sunday I hear the birds up here chirping away. I sit out on my back deck and just love the birds. We have bird feeders and all that sort of stuff out there. I just love it. He has this, a little seed grows into this massive plant so that the birds can rest in the branches. Do you know there's two billion Christians in the world that identify as Christians? We started with 12. You see, it went from a little seed to a big plant. And then the NIV says that uh, this uh, person, this lady, this woman, she mixes yeast into 60 pounds of dough. I think that makes a lot of bread. But Nancy was explaining to me the whole process, the way it used to be. And, you know, to me, you go down to the store and buy a loaf of bread. And so it's a long process to make bread. Some of the best bread will take a day or two to make. And so right off the bat, one of the things we learned, just what we, where, we let, where we just left off with the minor prophets, is God is very patient. He's very patient. And he captures that. He captures that in language like, God is not patient the way you think of patience. A day is like a thousand years. Why? Because he made all of you. He made every person in this county, in this state, in this nation, in this world, and he loves every single person. I love Genesis 15, where he cuts the covenant with Abraham. And he's explained to Abraham that all of his descendants get the land that we now know as Israel. And so Abraham says, well, how do I know that that's going to really happen? He puts him in a trance, cuts the animals, and he gets, you know, we've had that on another sermon. He walks through to make the covenant. But then he says something really fascinating. He said, oh, but then you have to be understand, Abram, I'm going to take all of your descendants out of this land for over 400 years. They're going to go to another country that's going to mistreat them, but I'm not going to forget them. I'll take care of them. And you think, why would God do that? And it's the last little clause. He said, because the sin of the Amorites has not reached its fullness yet. You see, this is the period of time where you have Eshcol uh, selling him the threshing floor and you have Melchizedek uh, going out and learning who this God is. And so this, this people group here had not made the decision to reject God. And God says, so I'm going to give them space 
so that they can make the decision. And when their sin gets to the point where they're done and they say, forget you, God, we want nothing to do with you, he says, okay. Then he comes back into the land. And that's a pattern we see over and over and over again. He goes after everybody. He keeps pursuing everybody. I am convinced that Judah, uh, Judah, Judas was a fool, not because he betrayed Christ. Peter did that. He was a fool because he took his own life. I think God would have gone right, Jesus would have gone right after him. And that's the pattern that you see. And so this first parable lets us see that God is very, very patient. He's not in a hurry. And so how did he take these 12? When I say 12, I'm including Paul in that. How did he take these 12 and bring the Roman Empire to its knees over several hundred years? Because they went after the poor, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the widows, the orphans, they went after all of them. And it spread like wildfire, wild, wildfire. It spread through the foundation of the empire. That's where it went. And the whole system of patronage comes crashing down. And that's what eventually happened. It gutted on the inside, from the inside out. And that's what this parable is talking about. But I think there's another level to this par- the, these two parables that are worth noting. Just the fact that he used, I was doing research into the mustard seed and the mustard plant. I'm not a cook. Just ask Nance. I don't know anything about it. I can fry an egg. I can make a great peanut butter sandwich. Okay? But... The mustard and the mustard seed, the mustard plant, is all edible, and it has really good nutrients to it. So another part of this parable is that God has intertwined everything into creation. Creation. I was reading Psalm 50, where God says, I know every animal in the woods. He even says, I know the insects in the field. They are mine. Ooh. Maybe we shouldn't be killing mice. No, just kidding. (laughs) You get the picture. Everything in creation, every animal belongs to God. And it says in Psalm 50, every one of them, they are mine. And so as this kingdom grows, then what happens is we see birds sitting in the the, uh, nest, the, the mustard plant. We see it. What does Proverbs tell us and Ecclesiastes tell us? The righteous person cares for their animals. And so as we begin to spread out and we take care of creation, by the way, that's Genesis 2. Serve the creation. He doesn't say worship it. He says serve it. Why? Because we live like this. That's why. We can't survive without this creation, and the creation can't produce what it needs for us to survive without us cultivating it. And so he's created this relationship like this where we live together. And as Christians, as we move out into the world, we begin to show that. So there's another little maybe hidden gem in this parable here of how we use creation. I was reading about yeast. It's a microorganism. How in the world did they even know about yeast? 
You know, it's pretty fascinating and how important it is in baking bread. It's marvelous. It's marvelous. A friend of mine, I was visiting him in Maine, and he said, would you like to go make some maple syrup? I go, huh? You buy that at the store. <laughs> he has 100 maple trees. So we go out and we collect the syrup, and I go, you're going to turn this into syrup, really? So he opens the tap on the tree, fills a glass, and gives it to me. He says, here, take a drink. I don't want to drink sap. He says, no, take a drink. Oh, it's actually pretty sweet. It's pretty tasty. So we boiled it down 40 gallons to one, and I brought home my own uh, maple syrup that I had made. You know what my first several thoughts were? I had several. Who's the first person that said, I think I'll drink sap? Who's the second person that said, I'm going to try it out of a birch tree? Blah. Okay. Who thought of that? Well, then I thought, what other treasures are hidden in this creation that we haven't even begun to figure out yet? Nuclear power. hundred years ago, that wasn't even conceived of. And see, creation is so intertwined with how God connects with us, how he communicates to us. Do you really believe that the heavens shout the glory of God? Everybody look over there. Just look over there. That creation, do you believe that? The heavens shout. It doesn't matter if I have a bad sermon. All you got to do is daydream about the creation and you're going to hear about God. Right? The skies, they tell us about his handiwork. Psalm 19, do you really believe that? I've told many people, I've started this way many times. If you don't know how to share the gospel, take your friend for a hike. Especially here. Some places in the world we wouldn't do that, but here. (laughs) Take him for a hike and say, what do you see? Tell me what you see. And let God shout his own glory. It's so intertwined and we see that in these first two parables God is not in a hurry he's very patient and he loves to plant small things and watch them grow every country I teach in it's fascinating to see their history if I wasn't involved in the beginning of it I go to Nepal 40 years ago the mission I work with there was no measurable Christians, and they started with just a few. Now we have churches planted and 470 churches planted in all 75 political districts. I was teaching in um, Cambodia last year, 75 young pastors that have very little education. Most of them have never even read the Bible, and yet they're out in the slums telling people about Jesus. And this year they told me they already have 150 signed up. It just grows. It grows. It grows. But God's not in a hurry. Don't ever worry about this country. Don't ever place your hope in a president. Don't place your hope in a political party. Because God is the one who grows the plant. So if you really want to see the kingdom at work, get out and love your neighbors. Be there when they need you. Ask them about their faith. As long as you're not trying to sell them a vacuum cleaner, everybody I've met in 40 years is very interested. And be willing to admit that the stereotypes have some degree of validity. They shouldn't be that way, but they do. 
I can't tell you how many times somebody told me why they hate the church. And I go, yep, I agree. I hate it too. Somebody said to me one time, they asked me in our hour, what do you say? This actually happened when somebody says to you, um, I hate Christians. I hate them too. Tell me what you hate about them. They're hypocrites. Yeah, they really are. I know a bunch of them. Okay? Just shouldn't be that way. It's messy, isn't it? It's messy living in a natural world, but trying to live out our faith and understand spiritually what God is doing. That's why the parables are so wonderful. They give us spotlight. They give us a glimpse into that messiness of those two worlds. So um, in whom do you trust? I'm just going to leave you with that. Whom? Is it a particular governor, president, political party, or is it God? The Psalms is filled with all kinds of language about preparing here, but trusting here. In whom do you trust? Learn to trust God. Father, thank you for... uh, Thank you for these parables. I mean, the first one's so short. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. You plant it and it grows into a big plant. That's not what they wanted in the first century. They wanted you to come back and rock the world. You did, just not the way they anticipated. Not the way they thought. Lord, help us. Give us courage to love our neighbors and our friends. Give us the ability, Lord, to, to look past all of our differences, whether it's politics, values, whatever it is. Give us the ability to look past all that and to see someone made in your image whom you love enough that you would die for. And give us more and more opportunities. Put us in front of our enemies. What a surprise to them that we would love them because they expect what they expected in the first century for us to stab them in the back. And then give us the wisdom to know how to love them and the courage to do it in faith. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.